Good morning, Chapel Hill, and welcome to worship, and especially warm welcome to those of you who joined us for the first time last week at our very first virtual Easter celebration, and you're back for seconds. How wonderful is that? We're really glad to be able to share in this time with you. Uh, but I've got to say, this is the weirdest Easter I've ever experienced. It was cool, it was fun, it was very different, but it was very weird. Ordinarily, I would be preaching five times over two days and to thousands of people in, in one building, and uh, instead, we were gathered all across the region through this, this virtual opportunity. It's an amazing thing what God is doing through this, and we're grateful for it. As best we can tell, we had something like 2,200 families that were a part of worship last week. And over the Holy Week, over the, all, the entirety of Holy Week, we had something like 4,300 hours where you all were engaged in worship, in devotions, in prayer, in our Good Friday prayer vigil. So we just want to thank you for being a part of that, for being so nimble, and for adapting to what is our new reality, at least for this present time. In fact, last week I was really encouraged because a couple showed up at our front door. Uh, they, they came with a, a basket of pastries, of goodies, and they just wanted to say that they appreciated me uh, being the shepherd of their flock. In fact, their, their brownies, I want you to take a look at the picture of the brownies that they had for me. You'll see it on your screen. Can you tell what that is, kids? What are you looking at? The brownie is a sheep. They made me some sheep brownies to thank me for being their pastor. Isn't that sweet? Of course, at some point, I had to bite the head off the sheep. So that was kind of weird and made me feel a little bad, but not so bad that I didn't, you know, blast right through it. I wolfed them down. That's a little pun for you, sheep, wolf. Pastor Ellis loves puns. If you ever have a chance, share a pun with him. That one was just for him. I do have to say that it seems like ages ago when we were all gathered together. The last time I preached in person was March 8th, and it was the, that day that we, even though attendance was down, we were very excited because we were going to roll out what we were calling our 2020 vision. We were going to spend four weeks talking about our vision for the future, our plans for the future, how we had it all nailed down for the coming year. And then came Corona. And all of those plans kind of went up in smoke. Not all of them. Some of them we just put on the shelf. And others of them, like our, our dreams of live streaming, worship services, someday in the distance, well, that kind of got pushed right to the front of the line. It is funny how in a moment all of our best plans can suddenly be scuppered. Proverbs 16.9 says that the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps and I think what it means is this, we can make our best plans, we can do our, our best strategy, our best work together, but in the end, the Lord is the Lord. Our sovereign God is going to decide what actually happens. So I only got to preach one of those four vision sermons, but I got to preach the one that matters most, because I got to preach on our new mission statement. Our elders felt like the time had come for us to rethink the way we talked about our mission as a church, and we wanted to build that mission statement around some of the greats of Jesus' teaching. We talked about the great commandment, the great commission, and the new commandment, and so that is what we built our new mission statement around. Let me just remind you, for those of you who, who weren't there that day, let's just refresh our memory of this. The great commandment is that moment when they came to Jesus and asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you've got to love God with everything you have, 
And you've got to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. That was the great commandment. And then another time when Jesus with his, was with his disciples in the upper room, we have what we, he, Jesus called the new commandment. He said, a new commandment I have for you, that you love one another as much as I have loved you. He said, that's the way the world will know that you're my followers, is by the way that you love one another. And then there was the great commission, Jesus' parting shot before he ascended back into heaven when he told his disciples, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of me. That's, that's what I'm going to send you to do. You could summarize those teachings up in, in, in terms of love. We could talk about it as God love, as neighbor love, as brother and sister love, and as world love. And so we took all of those important teachings of Jesus and we put them together and we developed our mission statement. So here it is. You could do drum roll on your lap or on your couch if you want to. Here's the mission statement of Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill exists to exalt Jesus, to elevate others, and to launch disciple makers. Why don't you say it with me right there in your, in your own living room. Chapel Hill exists to exalt Jesus, elevate others, and launch disciple makers. Because we are Chapel Hill, we thought it would be fun to have verbs that that speak in uplifting ways. And so we used the the words exalt and and elevate and launch. That seemed to make good sense to us. And uh, the first one of the three actually is pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? We say we live, we exist to exalt Jesus. We do everything we do is about lifting up the name and the person and the honor and the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we stop making that the centerpiece of our of our mission, we've stopped being Chapel Hill. And the last of the three is actually pretty easy to understand. We said that one of the reasons we exist is that we will send people out into the world not only to be Christians, but they're going to help other people to become Christians. They're going to know how to make disciples. So we're going to launch disciples. So that's who we are. We are going to um, elevate Jesus and we're going to launch others into disciple making. But there is a middle one that requires a little more attention. And we thought we would focus on that one. What does it mean to be a church that elevates others? Especially in, the, in this season of isolation and, and social distancing. Now more than ever, what does it mean to be a church that elevates others when we can't even get close to each other? In some ways, it's harder than it would have been. In other ways, we are discovering it, it's easier than it has ever been. Because our world is frightened and they are alone, and they are looking for answers, and we can meet those needs. So to kick off this series, when we're going to talk about what it means for us as a church to elevate others, I chose as my text what may be, I think, the most familiar verse in the New Testament. Now, some of you Sunday school folks and vacation Bible school folks, you'll say, well, that's got to be John 3.16. And you could probably recite that with me with your eyes closed right now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. And you say, that's a familiar verse. Maybe the most familiar, you would say. Well, I don't think so. I think there is one that is even more familiar. And you see if you agree with me. It starts like this. Do unto others. And go ahead, you finish it up at home. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
You've heard that, haven't you? I think the whole world has heard that. We even have a name for it. We call it the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And of course, that's kind of the old King Jimmy version of the verse. I'd like us to take a look at a more modern translation of this. It comes out of Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 the Gospel of Matthew, right in the middle of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Here is the way that we read it today. So, pay attention to that word, so. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you speak to us now through this short and oh-so-familiar passage But God, would you breathe new life into it that we might be those people who go out empowered to do what Jesus has called us to do, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. That's what we ask, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. I think I'm right about this. I think this is the most familiar of the best known of of Jesus' teachings. And, uh, and if you were looking for a, a summary verse, a verse that would kind of encapsulate this idea of elevating others, could you do better than that? I mean, if you want to test your every action, if you want to test the motives of your heart, if you want a, a biblical gut check every time you start to do th- something, you could hardly do better than do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So I want you to give me a quick head nod through the camera there. Raise your hand. If Yes, I am familiar with this passage. Go ahead. And I want to ask you, do you think you understood what it means? Are you familiar with it? And you say, yes, I'm pretty familiar with it. But I'll bet you know less about it than you think you do. For instance, I'll bet you've heard something like this, that the golden rule wasn't unique to Jesus that you will find some version of the golden rule in every major religion of the world down through the ages. Have you heard that? Well, it's not quite right. In fact, I would contend that this teaching of Jesus is unique to him, original to him, that no one before him captured this idea in exactly the way that Jesus did. So this morning we are going to take a deep dive into a very short verse. And I want to take a look at four things, four ways that, ex- that, that really characterize the uniqueness of Jesus' golden rule from all of the other teachings that are similar to it. Here they are. Here are the four distinctives of the golden rule. First of all, it is positive, not negative. It is active, not passive. It is selfless, not self-centered. And it is divine, not human. So those are our four distinctives. Let's take a quick look at each of them. First of all, the golden rule is positive. It's not negative. Of all of the six major world religions that predate Christianity and have a teaching something like this, every one of them is stated negatively. For instance, the religion of Confucianism, it teaches this way, do not do to others what you would not like yourself. Do not do to others what you would not like yourself. Do you see the difference? He says, don't do anything to someone that you wouldn't want to have them do to you. And Taoism and Zoroastrianism and Buddhism and Hinduism and Rabbinic Judaism all teach the same thing, the negative approach. In fact, this negative take on the golden rule even has its own name. It's called 
the silver rule. Silver, because silver is precious, but it is not nearly as precious as gold. And why are these other worthy teachings just not on the par with the teachings of Jesus in this regard? Because they urge you to avoid negative behavior instead of encouraging you to perform positive acts of kindness. There is a difference between saying, do good things, and saying, refrain from doing naughty things. Do, we read, do good, Jesus says, and everyone else says, don't do bad. That's a difference. And it also leads us into our second distinctive. The golden rule is active, not passive. So it is positive, not negative. It is active, not passive. Think about it. If all you need to do to avoid breaking the silver rule is not do bad things, then you could do nothing and still obey the rule, right? But the the command of Jesus is active. He says, do. Do unto others. Initiate. Take action. Take the lead. Reach out. Cindy and I have only been a couple of years in our neighborhood. We love it. And we determined that when we moved there, we were going to do everything we could to reach out to our neighbors, to love our neighbors, to, to care for them. And we've had some fun times, and actually most of them have been very responsive to this. But there was one woman, one older woman, we could never make any progress with. We never heard back from her. She would never answer phone calls. She would never respond to emails. And when we knocked on her door to check on her, we heard her dog barking inside, so we knew she was there, but she would never come to the door. We assumed that she was probably a little frightened, And so we, and when I say we, I mean Cindy, my wife Cindy, continued to just reach out to her. This last Tuesday, we were outside working in our yard, and this woman comes out of her house with her dog, walks by us, we said hi, and she stopped. She paused, and we had a delightful conversation. And at the end of that conversation, she said, I want to thank you for continuing to reach out to me. It's nice to know that there's someone in the neighborhood that cares about me. And I would say that that is a win, don't you? And it's because Cindy chose to actively love this neighbor regardless of her response. So the golden rule is positive. It is active. Here's the third point. The golden rule is selfless, not self-serving. Nearly other, every other version of the golden rule in, in other religions actually seems to be suggesting that if you do these things, then it's going to work out good for you. So you really want to do, behave this way if it'll, if it'll, so that it'll work out for you in the end. And you could even uh, in, assume that the golden rule here is Jesus' way of saying that this is the recipe for good life. It's kind of like the spiritual uh, quid pro quo. If you do good things for me, I'll do good things for you back and forth, and it's going to be the perfect kind of life. It will all be good. And it sounds very plausible if all you do is read verse 12... But the thing is, this is a part of a three-chapter sermon. And when you turn back to the early chapter, chapter 5, Jesus made it very clear that even when we do what he tells us to do, even when we live in a way that honors him and honors the, the Father and observe his teaching and live life his way, it may result in persecution, not in praise. 
You remember how the good, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount starts. It's with a, a say, uh, eight sayings called the Beatitudes. Listen to the last two of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Does Jesus promise that those who behave righteously towards others are going to, are going to be treated in kind? To the contrary, he makes it very clear that there will be times that even when we seek to live righteously, even when we seek to love people the way Christ has loved us, that, that it will result in persecution for us. Which means, then, that we are to do unto others not because we're hoping for a return on investment, but because Jesus taught us and empowered us to love others that way. Even our enemies. It is selfless, not self-centered. I want to I look at one other final piece. The golden rule is divine, and it's, it's not human. Now, what do I mean by that? It is very easy to take this little couplet and, uh, and treat it as a moralism. In other words, it's nice to be nice. It's good to be good. So we're going to try hard to be nice, try hard to be good. But if we think about this as being based on human goodness, we're, we're not even reading the whole verse. The golden rule is actually bookended on both ends of the verse by reminders that this teaching is of divine power and not human effort. For instance, take a look. Remember I told you to remember the first word in the verse? What was the first word? So. So. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And you might say, so what? Here's what. Anytime that Jesus started a teaching with so or therefore, what he was saying is, therefore on the basis of what I just taught you, therefore on the basis of what you just saw me do, now I want you to do this. Now I want you to believe this. So, what did Jesus just teach? He had just taught about a heavenly father who lavishes his children with good gifts, with kind, good gifts, because he loves us. He pours out his generosity upon us even when we don't deserve it. Then Jesus, having taught about this lavish grace of the father, says, so do unto others. In other words, since our Heavenly Father is lavish in His love towards us, so you too should be lavish in your love to those who are around you. That's how the verse starts. It's, it's seeped in divine goodness, not in human effort. And how does it end? It ends this way, oddly. It says, for this is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this is the law and the prophets. Honestly, I've never even paid attention to that until this last week. How many times have I read this verse? But in other words, Jesus is saying this teaching summarizes all that God has said in the past, the law and the prophets. It's a summary of the teaching of God. The golden rule, in other words, isn't a human moralism. It is a divine declaration of how things ought to be when we are living God's way. But here's the deal. If the golden rule is positive, 
active, selfless, and divine, and we are by nature negative, passive, self-centered, and idolatrous, then it's going to be impossible for us to fulfill the golden rule in our own strength. Impossible. Which is okay, because it turns out that we don't need to. Jesus, before he even taught the golden rule, had lived the golden rule. He gave to us this love that was positive and active and selfless and divine. He has given us his divine Holy Spirit that we might do unto others as he has already done to us. We elevate others, in other words, in, not in our own power and effort, but in the power of Jesus. I heard a, a wonderful example this last week of ways that our Chapel Hill students are elevating others in this time of shutdown. We have a wonderful team of, of lay leaders that work with our youth group, our youth program, and four of them are first, re, first responders. They have been on the front line of this COVID crisis, putting themselves at great risk. And our kids decided that they wanted to bless them. So what did they decide to do? They decided they would give them a heart attack. That's what they called it, and only high school kids could get away with calling it something like that. But this is what they did. They went to the front doors of every one of their homes, every one of these first responders, and decorated all of them with hearts, a symbol of their love for their leaders, their appreciation for all that they were doing, their courageous love, and their willingness to do unto others. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The longer this lockdown goes, the more we allow our scarcity mentality to freak us out, the more we worry about our supplies, our toilet paper, our wealth, our own well-being, the easier it is going to be for us to forget about elevating others and to focus solely on ourselves. And so, beloved followers of Jesus, those of you who are empowered by His Spirit, I tell you, this is our moment. This is the moment when the followers of Christ must rise up and tap into that Holy Spirit that lives within us and do unto others. Let us pray. Please, Jesus, would you remind us that this is not about gritting our teeth and trying harder. It's not about saying, I'm going to do better next time. I blew it that time. That might be part of it, but really, Lord, it is about allowing that spirit of you that lives in us already, that spirit that brought to us this love that was active and positive, holy, selfless, loving. This love that you came to us now lives in us and is ready to break forth into the lives of others around us. Lord, could we just be... uh, the conduit of that love with which you have loved us? Could we be a conduit of that spirit with which you have filled us? And so when we do unto others in a way that we would love to have it done to us, may it not be self-serving in the least, but instead, Lord, may it be a witness to the love of Jesus who came to us, who gave everything to us and expected nothing in return. Accept our love, our life. And so we offer that to you anew, and we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit again. In Jesus' name, amen.